From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll look at a program trying to get more special education teachers in Milwaukee public schools. Then we'll learn about the history of the Milwaukee Soldiers Home and how it's helped generations of veterans. This is a building that is made with the very sort of marrow of who we are. It's, it's a beautiful gothic tower built with cream city brick made from clay from the Menominee Valley. I mean, it's very much of us. Plus, we'll look at a new book that explores infertility through personal essays, poetry, and art. Infertility really is an identity that never goes away. It doesn't disappear. It's constantly lurking in the background in terms of one's identity. And I think that's something that a lot of people who don't go through it don't necessarily understand. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. There's a shortage of teachers at Milwaukee Public Schools, and special education teachers are some of the hardest positions to fill. At the beginning of the school year, MPS had more than 200 teaching vacancies. A new paid opportunity aims to change that. It's UW-Madison's Special Education Teacher Residency, a partnership with Milwaukee Public Schools. Students will complete a paid 10-month residency in MPS while earning their master's degree. They'll also be eligible for free tuition. In return, students must commit to teaching in MPS for three years after graduation. WUWM education reporter Emily Files talks with UW-Madison special education professor Kimber Wilkerson, who is leading the new teacher residency program. So tell me what this program aims to do. This program is a teacher residency program that aims to prepare three cohorts of 12, so 36 total, master's level special educators for uh, Milwaukee public schools. So um, ultimately, it's a five-year project. And at the you know culmination, there will be 36 new special educators who are well-prepared and committed to staying in the district. Um, we do this through a residency model. So they spend an entire academic year with a mentor teacher in Milwaukee Public Schools. So they get to know the school building, hopefully where they will be employed. They start developing a network. Um, they have each other as cohort members, so they kind of have a peer network as well, so that by the you know, end of their preparation, they're kind of going into that first year as a teacher with, with a high level of preparation, as well as a lot of um, professional and social supports as well. So why special education teachers and why MPS? Those are great questions. Why special education teachers is because special education is one of the most high need areas within public schools for teachers. So a lot of people are familiar with um, the shortage of teachers that we have right now for all kinds of positions. But special education has been an area that's been um, harder to staff for decades. So I would argue that those positions are the most critical to be filled with people who are well prepared and, you know, sort of strong in their jobs in order to, you know, do right by kids with disabilities um, and their families. But unfortunately, it's the case that special education has some of the most vacancies of any of any teaching position. 
and USY um, MPS. So um, this project is a grant funded project that is funded by um, a program called the Teacher Quality Partnership Program by the US Department of Education. And um, to receive funding to run one of these residency programs, you must partner with districts that meet a threshold of need. We actually had one of these grants from 2018 up until 2023. It just ended where we partnered with Beloit and 16 small rural districts that all met that threshold for need. And then um, this round, we are um, partnering with MPS because they also meet that threshold of need. So these are people sort of districts all within the kind of southern half of the state makes it feasible for students to actually physically come to our campus. One of the things that's a draw for our district partners, and in this case specifically Milwaukee, is just that the possibility of attracting people into something that has a lot of financial and social supports built into it. We, they get a living stipend um, of around $46,000 while they're in the program. And they also have, um, through the UW-Madison's Wisconsin Teacher Pledge, they can also have their in-state tuition covered. You know, we're, we're putting a lot of financial resources into this program, um, but uh, they're committing on the front end to being a special educator and being a special educator in this district. So that is, um, it's a good place to invest resources. So on that note, one criticism of teacher prep programs is that when students are doing their student teaching, they aren't paid usually. So this program, like you said, includes a stipend of about $46,000. And in return, the teacher candidates agree to teach in MPS for three years. So um, is that is the stipend kind of trying to deal with this problem of the unpaid student teaching and teacher prep programs? I think indirectly. So this this is a master's level program. And um, for people who are career changers, by this time, people are supporting themselves and it's difficult to go back to school full time. Um, So you mentioned sort of the burden associated with um, student teaching. Sometimes that makes it harder for people to have a job because they're in a school internship setting all day. I mean, certainly the same is true for these students as well, but they're taking a full load of classes, summer, academic year, summer. They're in the school full-time, you know, they'll come to campus one day a week, but they're in the schools many hours a week. Um, It's hard to do anything on top of that to earn money. And so the living stipend is an acknowledgement of, you know, like you have to be able to support yourself and sort of providing this kind of stipend allows someone to actually make the choice to become a teacher when it might be sort of financially impossible otherwise. And you mentioned that UW-Madison also has a program that pays a student's tuition if they pledge to teach in Wisconsin for three to four years after graduating. So that means that a student in this program could get their tuition paid for and get paid to teach while they're earning their master's degree. Is that right? You've got it exactly right. So we have this, we're really fortunate to have these two, the the Department of Education funding for this uh, living stipend, as well as the uh, Wisconsin Teacher Pledge. Um, and together, those two create a pretty nice financial package for someone, again, who's attracted to the idea of being a teacher and might otherwise um, not feel like they could make that choice. I want to know a little bit more about what the residency looks like. So 
Is this a student teaching type of position? Will they be a lead teacher in a classroom or will they be assisting um, a mentor teacher? Yeah, um, the, the residency is a lot like a student teaching experience, only it takes place over the course of a whole year. A lot of people are attracted to a residency model because it allows them to really get into the fabric of a school, you know, instead of short placements where you're moving around to different schools, this one allows you to kind of become a part of the school community. Um, it is a developmental process. So people who come into this program don't typically have a background in education. So when they start their residency, it would, um, they need to do some observation, they need to do some assisting, you know, there's sort of, there's a gradual um, taking on of responsibility. And ultimately, yes, people will have lead weeks, you know, they will have time when they are um, responsible for instruction or, you know, managing groups on their own. Um, obviously, that kind of internship model, the hope is that by the end of it, the person experiencing it feels like fully confident and has, you know, the skills to, to be on their own. So certainly we kind of gradually increase their responsibility. So how will you go about recruiting and what would you tell students who might be interested? Um, we are recruiting in collaboration with MPS. So we um, believe that there may be some people who are current MPS employees who are not in instructional roles, who might be interested in continuing their career with MPS in, in this kind of role. And this might be an opportunity that um, they would find attractive. We are also looking at people who, again, career changers, sometimes people are in sort of related helping professions, people have a an interest in disability. Sometimes we have people who may have a family member or their own child with a disability who are kind of interested in, in being a part of the support system and for kids with disabilities. So there are um, different groups of people who we reach out to, and we'll do that again in collaboration with MPS. Okay. Um, anything else that you want to add? I hope that the information about the program gets out as a, to a wide of audience as possible, because I personally think special education is an excellent career. There's a lot of reward and a lot of joy in working with kids, especially um, sort of working with kids who other people don't always um, see their full potential. So I think it's a really re rewarding profession and we're trying to make it as supportive and financially possible um, to uh, move into this profession. So I, I guess I hope that the word gets out as far as possible and that people who might not have um, viewed themselves in that role would, um, would take a moment to consider it. Kimber Wilkerson is a special education professor at UW-Madison who is leading a new residency program to place special educators in Milwaukee public schools. She spoke with WUWM's Emily Files. Looking west over the city of Milwaukee near the Brewers Stadium, you may have seen a Victorian turret rising above a thicket of trees. If you move closer, you'll find a grand home, more than a century old, surrounded by a complex of historic buildings all created with a singular goal, helping America's veterans. It's the Milwaukee Soldiers' Home, and since it was created in the mid-1800s, it's helped generations of veterans. A new film from Milwaukee PBS explores that history and how it continues to help veterans today. 
Marianne Lazarski and Scotty Lee Myers are the producers behind the documentary called A Hallowed Home for Heroes. They join me now in studio. Marianne, Scotty, thank you both so much for being here on Lake Effect. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Joy. So the Milwaukee Soldier's Home has become a a pretty iconic part of the skyline, specifically near the Brewers Stadium. Why was the Soldier's Home first created? Well, it it was created uh, actually by a group of women who were taking care of soldiers during the Civil War era and makeshift temporary storefronts. And just to kind of briefly tell you, they were set on trying to figure out a permanent place for the soldiers to come and rest and heal from their wounds and sicknesses. And so they're the ones who really were the founders of the soldiers' home. And uh, there was a fair that was involved, and they raised a ton of money, $110,000. And, you know, back then that was a lot of money. And their business husbands uh, decided to go to Washington and uh, tell uh, President Lincoln that he should uh, build the first soldier's home here in Milwaukee. And that was at the same time that the president had signed legislation to create a national system of soldier's homes. But these women, they were smart women, and they were gung-ho about, hey, we're going to get this done. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of how it all started. Yeah, the the origin of the VA system as we know it today, we see that big building, the Clement J. Zablocki VA Medical Center on the south side of Milwaukee. That whole system, the story starts in Milwaukee with, as Marianne said, these founding women. And sometimes I think we get this impression when we hear about, you know, the mid-19th century women creating this, but they weren't just sort of like having tea parties and raising money. These were like real political actors of that time with strong project management sense, with great business acumen. They got things done. And, you know, this story also coincides with President Abraham Lincoln's last legislative act, one of his last legislative acts before he was assassinated. And essentially, he called on Congress in his second inaugural address to build a national system of homes to take care of veterans as they return from the battlegrounds. Well, this comes around at a really interesting time, I think, both in our nation's history, but also kind of the history of the world. We're in a situation where for the first time, soldiers are in larger numbers surviving their injuries. These are people who are not necessarily dying on the battlefield. They aren't dying in these battlefield side hospitals, but they are able to come home, but their lives are forever changed by their time at war. What were the initial years of this space like as they're, as they're kind of figuring out what this system is going to be? So there was a strong patriotic sense that we need to care for these men who are returning home from battle. And so the mass efforts that were undertaken, I mean, every sort of parish and town and corner of the city, there was organizing happening. People were doing you know, collections of money, collections of clothing, of food, of lint that would help with wounds. So in the beginning, it really was an incredible all-hands-on-deck effort. But it also sort of, I mean, these were men who were scarred and who had amputations and injuries from war, and sometimes they they suffered. Uh, There's quite a bit of documentation about drinking and alcoholism on campus, 
so like any sort of population, there is, you know, struggles as well. Yeah. And, you know, the founding women, you know, their intent, I think, was to have the soldiers home for Wisconsin veterans. But what happened was it became a place for soldiers from across the country who, you know, might come here for rest or to heal from whatever, um, you know, wounds or whatever. And so, you know, again, that was in line with um, what, you know, President Abraham Lincoln wanted. But like Scotty said, you know, patriotism was very strong. But even today, there are veterans from, you know, the Iraq War, Afghanistan, um, those who would have otherwise been homeless at least have an option, you know, if they qualified to be at Milwaukee Soldiers Home. So, you know, and this is in the future is important because sadly, there will probably be other wars. We always hope that there aren't. But there will always be a place for veterans who are in need of some place to live. And the veterans who live in Old Main and on campus right now, they are really being provided by a couple agencies on campus with wraparound services, whether it's employment help, financial literacy, a connection to both mental and physical health. So those wraparound services exist today to veterans who are living at the Milwaukee Soldiers Home. And that makes Milwaukee and Milwaukee Soldiers Home um, unique, um, that everything is kind of right there for those veterans. Well, and this is something that is, I was about to say new, but relatively new, in part because although the Soldiers Home is very old, things changed over the decades at the space itself. What, What has that evolution been like in this space? Because for a time, it was it was closed. Yeah, it was closed for nearly 30 years. And obviously, a lot of deterioration happened. But one of the, the main project manager from the Alexander Company, who oversaw the restoration of six buildings there, uh, and they reopened in 2021, you know, their, their intent was to raise the money to restore these buildings because they knew it was very important. And, you know, they're hoping to do the same with three other buildings there uh, on the campus, which is the theater, the chapel, and what's called the governor's mansion. So remember, Soldier's Home was like a village district in and of itself and had its own zip code, but it also had a governor, so to speak, who oversaw the district. And so those other three buildings hopefully will be restored very soon um, because the veterans would like that to happen. People in this community would like to see that happen. And the restoration that happened with the original six buildings, um, it's really impressive, especially with Old Main. When you look at the, the photographs and the images of the deterioration and then you see how it's been transformed, the veterans who live there are just, they're in awe. You know, as they told us, if you're a veteran dealing with some trauma or in crisis uh, and you have no place to go, this is, a, as they put it, this is a great deal. <laughs> so we're fortunate to have this here in our own backyard. And the existence of this place was called into question in the past as well. In 1915, 16, 1917, as Civil War veterans were sort of aging and, and dying and, and their numbers were dwindling at Old Main and on campus there, Folks weren't really sure if, like, there was a need for this place anymore. There was a city official who said, should we close this place down and just make it, like, a big park for the public? And then came World War One and things to follow, and then you had sort of a new generation of veterans moving into the home. 
1989, fast forward a bit, that is when the VA officially put locks on the doors. Old Main was too old to tear down, but also too decrepit to let people live there anymore. And so it just sat there vacant. Paint was peeling from the walls. A New York Times article referred to it as, as Spanish moss almost. I mean, it was just a dire situation. And then the roof collapsed. And then when the roof collapsed, it really galvanized the community to come together and say, look, what a this is a jewel in our community with a ton of history. It's a beautiful, we need to preserve this place. And that's really when things kicked off that uh, the Milwaukee Soldiers Home was, we all love to hate listicles, but uh, it was named one of the 11 most endangered national historic landmarks in the country. And really a revitalization effort was put into place after that. So as we look at the documentary itself, how do you explore uh, this history? Because we're talking about a lot of time. What What is it, 130 years? <laughs> yeah. There's 140? A, there, yeah, there's a ton, ton of history. And, you know, you, you can't cover every single little detail, but yet important detail. We tried to tell this story through a family, actually, who who grew up there because their dad was a chaplain for the VA and he was a, an army colonel. And they helped, walked us through the journey of the soldier's home by coming back and having them reflect on some of their memories. Um, their parents are both buried at Wood. And they talk about primarily their teenage years of what it was like to live in old Building 11, which was the fire engine house at the time uh, before they moved in there. And they they talk about some of their memories and soldiers walking back and forth on the side of their house. And they never used the back door to, only to take out the garbage because there was always, you know, soldiers walking around and, and people didn't know where they lived. You know, their friends were like, you live where? Um, so they had a very sweet story to tell. And um, they, too, are very passionate about the soldier's home and what it represents and who it serves. And so they were very um, gracious and helping, and they wanted to help us tell this story. But, you know, we also had to talk about the women founders because that's really important. And, of course, you have to talk to veterans because that's who this place impacts and serves. And we had to talk to historians, right, and preservationists. We spent about a year yeah. working on this project. And, you know, the first thing you do is research, right? And I don't know how many documents we went through and Scotty reading uh, a number of books and going over to the UWM archives and just to try to figure out and get a sense of, okay, you know, what re- what really needs to be covered in the time that we have. So, again, this is not a 10-part <laughs> documentary, right? And so we had to be a, a little bit selective, but I, I, I think we uh, covered the main points. So people who didn't know anything about the Soldier's Home, which is why we did this in the first place, because, you know, we were tired of hearing people saying, you know, well, what's that What's that building? You know, you go to the Brewer game. Hey, do you know what that is? Uh, and it looks like a haunted house, but no. And then you tell them and they're like, oh, really? And so I think this this uh, documentary is uh, educational for those people who don't know anything about it. And also, I think it's also a very, um, I don't know, it just hits the heart, I think, when you, those people who do know about it, 
they can kind of reflect and think back to maybe some of the stories that they heard, maybe from parents or great grandparents. Um, it just kind of solidifies the the uniqueness and the, the importance of this place that we have in Milwaukee. And, and you can't do a documentary about a historic Milwaukee institution without chatting with John Gerda, who was featured in this documentary. And it, right at the top of the doc, he says, you know, the Milwaukee Soldiers Home, Old Main, is the most visible and least recognized building probably in the whole city of Milwaukee. And I think that's true. We don't know enough about this place. I mean, this is a building that is made with the very sort of like marrow of who we are. It's it's a beautiful gothic tower built with cream city brick made from clay from the Menominee Valley. I mean, it's very much of us. And so we are honored and, and proud to share a little bit of its story. And I also think people aren't going to realize until they watch the documentary that it's not just Old Main that represents Milwaukee Soldiers Home. There's a lot more to that campus. Uh, and uh, they, you know, they might be surprised. Yeah. All right. Well, Scotty, Marianne, thank you both so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and sharing your work. Always happy to talk to you, Joy. Thanks, Joy. I appreciate it. Marianne Lazarski and Scotty Lee Myers are producers at Milwaukee PBS, and they're the team behind its new documentary, A Hallowed Home for Heroes. The documentary can be seen online and will air on Milwaukee PBS this Saturday in honor of Veterans Day. At wuwm.com, you can find more information on the film. There's a comic book shop in Milwaukee with a big ticket item for sale. It's a rare copy that features the first appearance of Spider-Man. We'll talk with a guy trying to sell it and learn all about it later in the show. But first, an infertility diagnosis carries a lot of weight and stigma. We'll tell you about a new book that tries to break that down through art and poetry. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Today at the state capitol, State Senator Kelda Royce and State Representative Jody Emerson took steps to expand access to fertility treatment. They introduced the Wisconsin Building Families Act. It aims to remove economic barriers by requiring health plans to cover fertility treatment and preservation services. Infertility is a disease that affects one in six couples throughout the world. But as common as it is, struggles with infertility often stay in the shadows. A new anthology explores the many faces and feelings of infertility through personal essays, poetry, and art. Maria Novotny is an editor of the new book. She's also an assistant professor of English at UW-Milwaukee. Novotny spoke with WUWM's Lena Tran. She begins by sharing how the book project began. This project is really born out of a larger organization that I've been running with um, one of the co-editors, Elizabeth Horn. We started about 10 years ago a project called The Art of Infertility, largely because we had our own infertility experiences at that time, and we were running peer-led support groups, and really just grappling with what it meant to be infertile. Both of us were 
taking a break. None of us were doing treatment and just kind of sitting with the fact like, okay, we're two infertile women. What does this identity mean? And we were grappling with that using art and creative writing. We decided to kind of incorporate it with our support groups and take it on the road, so to speak. We've been able to meet so many men and women who've shared their infertility stories with us, often through visual artwork or oral history narratives. And then COVID happened. And we were like, well, we can't do public exhibitions of this anymore. And we decided really to kind of archive a lot of the pieces that we have and turn it into this wonderful anthology, um, really just to make it more accessible to not just like the infertility patient population, but also as a form of knowledge and education for providers, but also for our family and friends who, you know, really struggled with figuring out how to best support us and how to really understand the emotional triggers that come with basic questions like, so are you going to try again? Or can't you just adopt? Really well-meaning questions, but it can be really challenging, I think, when you're in the midst of an infertility diagnosis to, to answer. When did you realize the power or potential of art for processing this identity or like this journey? It was when we first started some of our pop-up exhibitions. So we got invited to work with some other peer counselors who are doing really like innovative symposiums around like, you know, mental health talks and things like that. And so they offered to kind of help fund us. Um, and we put up this like little pop-up exhibit of some people's art. Just watching people engage with it, especially the people who had no personal experience with infertility. They were really able, it seemed like, to work with the content in a way that didn't shut them down immediately. Sometimes when you open up, especially someone who's going through a really hard journey and experience, you open up, you tell your story, like, I just had my other, like, my third failed IVF, blah, 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 blah. And when you try to say that to someone who maybe doesn't have that same experience, they often, and rightfully so, just don't know what to say or how to engage. But art becomes such a different, meaningful tool where people can see the emotion of it. Yeah. They're is this kind of statement about how part of this book's mission is to kind of rewrite dominant narratives around infertility. So can you talk about the more expansive view that you're trying to take and where that leads you? For us, we really wanted infertilities as a plural to represent all of the ranges of ways in which you come to an infertility diagnosis and really to counter this myth that this is a white woman, you know, heterosexual disease. That's simply just not the case. Um, right before this went to press to be published, um, the World Health Organization revised their definition and their stats of infertility. It used to be that one in eight couples had an infertility diagnosis, and now they changed it to actually one in six. And that's, again, to be more expansive of, you know, not just your heterosexual couple, but, you know, same-sex individuals who want to have their own family, and the LGBTQ plus community, too, who needs fertility treatment if they want to have some sort of biological connected child. And so we're really trying to do that in the book with the, a range of different stories that we represent. So we have a lot of queer experiences in here, a lot of stories about needing sperm donors or needing an embryo donor, for instance. And we also do it in challenging notions of success. Infertility doesn't always end up with a take-home baby, and that can be a hard reality for a patient to swallow, but also a hard reality for like a loved one, for you know a hopeful grandma to swallow. Oftentimes you have to 
revise what you're going to be doing. So we try again to offer more expansive definitions of what success looks like that are really rooted in the realities that we've heard from so many of the patients that have contributed their stories to us. I will say that within the last two weeks, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, they've also revised their definition, so not just the statistic of how many people are impacted, but also they've revised the definition of infertility to be more inclusive of LGBTQ plus individuals and then also same-sex individuals. And we're really hoping that from an advocacy point of view that that will also help um, incorporate and broaden who qualifies for insurance coverage for fertility related services. In the state of Wisconsin, for instance, there's no mandate to make sure that uh, insurance companies provide any sort of coverage for fertility treatment. And that can be a huge barrier, particularly to, to persons of color who might not even be able to access a fertility related service if they aren't going to be able to provide any sort of coverage for it. So there's really no easy, quick, fast way to build your family after an infertility diagnosis, but I do think the moves that um, leadership in the American Society for Reproductive Medicine is making, along with a lot of infertility advocates demanding that we really broaden and think about the impact of the ways in which words matter, is trending towards the right direction in terms of improving access to care. Mm-hmm. There's this note at the beginning about like how we need to grapple with infertility in a post-Roe world. Obviously, in the past year, abortions, for the most part, have been banned until very recently. Can you talk about the place that infertility has in that landscape? So I come at this from two different ways. One, if you understand reproductive justice or what it means to really believe in equal access for reproductive care, I often cite Sister Song's definition of reproductive justice, which is the right to have a child, um, which includes then infertility to not have a child, right, which would include access to abortion care, and then also just the right to raise a child in a safe and sustainable community. And so if we understand it from that way, right, infertility does qualify as a reproductive justice issue. We just simply often think of it from a more larger narrative of access to abortion care. But at the same time, if you um, are having an infertility diagnosis, you may have also had repeated miscarriages or may have trouble just having and maintaining a pregnancy. And because of that, right, you might be at more risk and need access to like a DNC or other sorts of abortion-related services. And so if you're living in a state like Wisconsin where there is more restrictions, right, around what it means to access any sort of abortion-related services, it may actually cause pause, right, in your decision-making of moving forward with any sort of IVF or alternative family building plans if you're going to be at a higher risk of potentially losing that pregnancy and then also the potential risk that might have on the woman's life who'd be carrying that pregnancy as well. And so you understand it that it's not just simply right the access to fertility-related care and services, like having access to to embryos, right, but also the actual care that comes into play when you have a high-risk individual like someone who is infertile trying to get pregnant, and then not just the reality, right, of that pregnancy not working, but also what that might mean to the individual who's carrying that pregnancy as well. There's this idea that there aren't often, like, neat endings in an infertility journey, Can you say more about what that means and looks like for people? So part of also the purpose of this book is that infertility really is an identity that never goes away. It doesn't disappear. It's constantly lurking in the background in terms of one's identity. And I think that's something that 
a lot of people who, again, don't go through it, don't necessarily understand. They think, for instance, if you have a child, it's kind of resolved, it's fixed, right, in some ways. I found that in my own experience, right, I adopted my child, um, and many people think, oh, well, you did it, you, you achieved your goal, right, you're now a parent, and yes, that's the case, but I still am confronted, again, with well-meaning questions about, does your daughter have a sibling? And then me quickly trying to navigate, well, no, do I want to, how much do I want to say at that moment, right, or um, very well-meaning people, right, when I take her to the grocery store, my daughter has very, very, very blonde hair and does not look like me. And, and saying, like, where does she get her blonde hair from? My gosh, it's beautiful blonde hair, but where does she get it from, right? And again, having to navigate that. And not just that, right, but also starting, she's only four years old, right, starting to have those conversations with her because she's starting to notice those differences about what it means to also be an adopted child, right, and not to hide that, but to give her some power and advocacy in that as well. And that's just from my experience, right, but there are a lot of other individuals, right, who have their own infertility experiences and journeys that are also trying to navigate um, and talk about what it means. Let's say they didn't have success and they decided to live child-free. What does it mean when they move to a new neighborhood, for instance, and a well-meaning neighbor asks, do you have any children, right? How do you answer that? I mean, you can say just no, but if they want to ask follow-up questions, there might be other difficult things that come along that way. So like I said, it's just something that's constantly lives with someone, and it can be really isolating at different moments depending upon where you are with that journey. Mm-hmm. A lot of people write about, you know, are kind of expressing that they're dealing with this stigma around infertility and how it's hard to talk about. Mm-hmm. Do you think that it's hard for people to find, like, the kind of communities that you've led and peer support groups or that people are finding a lot of strength in? Yeah, so in the book, I think we cite, there's a statistic out there that about like 61% of women don't disclose their infertility. And that's just women. Um, we know that likely that it's likely higher for men too, because there are simply like less support networks for men. I will say in general, so this is the right, doing this work for the last 10 years, it's it's gotten better. Largely, I think, the stigma that is, it's gotten better because of more social celebrities, honestly, coming forward and, and disclosing their own journeys. So for instance, I remember like when Michelle Obama came out with their memoir, right? And she disclosed that she had to use IVF um, in order to have their family. That was a huge moment, especially for the BIPOC community, right? To see such a powerful woman also own up to this fact, right? That she needed fertility treatment. I think that really helped not shatter the glass, but, you know, make a break in terms of one representing like that this isn't also like a white woman's disease either so it's slowly getting better but i will say honestly when i'm running and i run a peer-led support group here in wisconsin there's still a lot of individuals who don't want to disclose or can't disclose not because they don't have the words or the tools but it's just so painful to really have that first conversation i think one easier way to go about it right is it's to think really about art and writing, right? To like make a piece and maybe take a picture of it and send it to someone and to provide a snapshot into that experience. That's why I started creating my own stuff is I just felt like I couldn't actually explain and sit down with my mom or my sisters about what was going on 
in my life and why I was so upset, why I didn't want to come to Thanksgiving, why that was going to be difficult. But having the chance, right, just to to write my story and represent and capture that t- moment in time um, was so freeing. And that's, I think, what we're trying to do with this as well, is offer other creative tools and methods to help people cope with their grief around infertility. Maria Novotny is an editor of the new book, Infertility's A Curation. She's also an assistant English professor at UW-Milwaukee and a steering committee member for the Building Families Alliance of Wisconsin. She spoke with WUWM's Lena Tran. A Milwaukee comic book store has a rare copy of the first appearance of Spider-Man, and it's up for sale. People who don't read comics are still going to those Marvel movies and spending their money and watching these for entertainment purposes. And having that piece of history, this is the first time Spider-Man has appeared anywhere, that's what gives it the panache. We'll tell you all about the comic and why it's so valuable next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers, the amazing Spider-Man. Whether or not you regularly read comic books or watch superhero movies, you've probably heard of this spider-powered superhero. The iconic hero has captured imaginations since he debuted in 1962. Now, a comic book store in Milwaukee is selling an original edition of the comic in which he first appeared. Steve Dobrzynski is the owner of Collector's Edge Comics in Milwaukee's Bayview neighborhood and is now selling this original issue. In 1962, the issue was sold for 12 cents, but Steve thinks this single issue could be worth up to $35,000. Lake Effect Sam Woods visited the store to learn what makes this issue so valuable. Steve, you have a very rare item in your possession, or you're selling it on behalf of someone. Uh, the first appearance of, of Spider-Man, and there's been several movies made based off of this comic, beloved superhero, but can you tell me a little bit about this particular issue that you're looking to sell? Um, the issue in question is uh, Amazing Fantasy number 15 from 1962. It was the very first appearance of Spider-Man anywhere. and it introduced that character and that character became so popular because of that small story in that issue that they gave him its own title shortly afterwards. So this comic was released in 1962. Do you know anything about how it was received at the time? Was it an you know, instant hit that everyone wanted to get their hands on or did it take time to kind of build to its the ubiquity that Spider-Man has in our culture today? Spider-Man initially uh, created by Stan Lee um, He pitched the idea, and his boss at the time hated it. Um, He wanted to put the story out, and his boss just said, spiders are creepy, nobody likes them. Why would you want to do a story about this? Because he made it a teenager. He made it somebody who's got problems. He made it with uh, powers from a spider. And his boss did not want to put that out to the public. But Amazing Fantasy was called Amazing Adult Fantasy until issue 13, issue 14, or up to 14, and then 15 was Amazing Fantasy. 
and then it stopped after that. It, it was the end of the run. They were going to do that last issue, and that was it. And they said, go ahead, do your story. And he did the story with Spider-Man in it, and it was very well received. It sold out very quickly. They had to do some type of follow-up because they people were demanding to read more about this character. And so that's why they gave Spider-Man his own series, starting with Spider-Man number one. Uh, so the first appearance was Amazing Fantasy, and then it went Spider-Man number one. The headline that's been out there is that you know you're looking to sell this for 35 grand, or you think it can fetch up to that point. But can you tell me a little bit about um, how you got to that price point, and also what that process is like to to sell a book? Because I imagine you're fielding calls from kind of all over the nation. It's not just necessarily people in Milwaukee who can come pick it up. Correct. Um, when first uh, approached by this, it's I was asked what is this comic worth and you can't really say it's worth x number of dollars it's worth whatever is somebody's willing to pay if the only bid i can get for this book is a dollar then it's worth a dollar if the highest i can get is a million dollars then it's worth a million dollars it's basically the range of sales that i've seen in the last year or so have been anywhere between around 24,000 to I've seen up to 35,000. I've seen books of the same quality for sale for 70,000. To me, as a comic book retailer, I, I see that as unrealistic prices, but if somebody's willing to pay for that, then that's what that comic is worth. I'm imagining when someone called you to say, hey, I think I have this particular issue of, of Spider-Man in my possession. Um, and I'm imagining your reaction, you probably get these kinds of calls a lot, and you're a little skeptical at first. But can you walk me through uh, that journey of you know someone calling you up, saying, I have this, to you actually verifying that they actually do have this, and this is a incredibly rare item? The conversation usually goes, I have the first appearance of Spider-Man, how much would you offer for it? Okay. Do you have a reprint? Do you have it in hardcover form? Is it something that uh, was in the newspaper? Um, it, there's a lot of questions I would have. And I first say I would have to see it before we can identify it and then make the de uh, determination of what the value is after I see it. Because there's a lot of times that people will call up and say, I have the first appearance of Spider-Man, and it ends up being the free comic that they gave away in the uh, Milwaukee Journal. For 24 weeks, they offered 24 volumes of Spider-Man in a comic form, about an eight-page book, and it gave you these first appearances and everything in there. And there's a difference between that book and the actual real article where it came out in 1962 that is the valuable book. You kind of touched on this a little bit of why these comics are valuable, but for people who aren't into collecting comic books or, or reading comic books, can you describe maybe through analogy what's so uh, important about this issue or why is it so, you know, seen as so valuable? It's iconic. I mean, it's, it, it's prevalent in everywhere in the United States. You show a picture of Spider-Man and everybody knows who he is. The movies are coming out, uh, all the Marvel movies, all the DC movies are showing Batman and, and they're giving the live action stuff. It's giving that extra uh, recognition to those characters. People who don't read comics are still going to those Marvel movies and spending their money and watching these for entertainment purposes. And having that piece of history, this is the first time Spider-Man has appeared anywhere. That's what gives it the panache, the, that extra... I own the first appearance of Spider-Man in comic book form of an original comic 
if people like that, you know, to have that uh, in their collection that, that, that they say that, you know, I own this, you know, it's, this is important. On that point, it seems like there's two, two motivations here for someone who might want to purchase a book like this. One is like, I have a, you know, I, I grew up reading these or I grew up watching the movies. I, I have other aspects of Spider-Man or aspects of superheroes in my, um, in my collection. And I want this because it just gives me that special feeling knowing I have it. And I'm imagining there's also probably people who are looking at these dollar signs and saying, this is an investment. This is something that I can, I can buy now, hold on to, and value appreciates as time goes on. Do you know if these tend to go to people who have that emotional, personal connection to the subject, people who are looking at it as a financial investment or some kind of combination in between? Well, it's actually three different kind of classes of people. It's people that collected it when it first came out and it was just, they loved that character and they bought all the issues and it was just part of their collection. Uh, the other ones are the collectors who are being completists. They want every issue. They're going back and looking for that issue number 27 or yeah. 52 or whatever it is that they're, they need for their collection to complete their set. And then there's the third parties, which are speculators who are looking to say, well, if I buy it today, will it be worth more tomorrow? Will it be worth less tomorrow? No one knows the future on that, so it's one of those things where you see ups and downs with prices. There, there are those speculators that are buying books like this, but they're trying to find it for the least price that they can get because they want to make as much money as possible on the secondary sale. For anyone who thinks they have a rare item or, or just an item that they want to know more about, say they're cleaning out grandparents' basement or something and you know find a, a comic book issue they don't know about or they think something's rare and, and want to know more about it, what's the what would be some of your recommendations for how to go about finding out more about what you have? First of all, protect the item. Um, you want to make sure that you don't put any additional creases or folds or tears in the book because that will all take money away from the value of the book. I always tell people that on an older book, every tear crease or bend you put in that is like taking money and ripping it up. So you protect the book. Second, call somebody that knows comics. If you don't know a comic shop in your area, uh, ask somebody to see if they do and they'll be able to lead you to a place when someone brings a collection is i we identify the book i show them how to grade i show them what the price is for a near mint copy as opposed to a lower grade copy and so they know what they have if you don't know and not everybody knows about comics like i do i try to impart that knowledge on people and give them that information well, Steve, uh, thank you so much for your time. Um, really appreciate it, and good luck with uh, moving that original Spider-Man. Oh, you're quite welcome. It was my pleasure. That was Steve Dobrzynski, owner of Collector's Edge Comics in Milwaukee's Bayview neighborhood. He spoke with Lake Effect Sam Woods. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll talk with the judge who's captaining Milwaukee County's Veterans Treatment Court and find out how a relative who served in the military has inspired her. Plus, have you ever seen an unusual house in an unexpected location and wondered what the story was? Bubbler Talk looks into a house just like that in the Sherman Park neighborhood. 
We'll learn more tomorrow at noon right here on Lake Effect on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.